Okay, let's get into our uh, breakout session topic. Uh, a dispensational response to the amillennial recapitulation view of the book of Revelation, especially Revelation 19 and 20. That's the issue. Okay, and uh, let's get into it. That's a question about structure of the book of Revelation. And of course, dispensationalists uh, argue among ourselves, we argue among ourselves, about how things are structured in the book of Revelation. Not everything is nailed down, uh, and so we're trying to sometimes read between the lines. Uh, but there is definitely a sequence that we see. That's one thing that dispensationalists will agree on. There's some kind of sequence happening in the book of Revelation. Some see a simple sequence. You have the seals, the trumpets, and the seven bowls. So you have these tribulation judgments, and there are 21 of them. I'll just go bam, 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 right through the, the list. Okay. Others see sequence, but with progressive parallelism. Now, I'm going to use, come back and use that term progressive parallelism with respect to amillennialism. This is something entirely different. And here's what is meant by that. Some say, yeah, you have the seven seals, and you have the seven trumpets, and you have the seven bowls, but their impact goes on and on and on. Or even when they might say the seal goes on and on and on. The trumpet goes on and on and on all the way to the end. Uh, and uh, I understand that, some overlapping, cutting short, etc. But the problem is, with this view, some things like that make sense. Uh, for example, you have war, so second horse, red horse, war. And there does seem to be war all the way through. So in the first half it intensifies, in the second half the thing ends in the Battle of Armageddon, for goodness sake. Uh, so you got war all over the place. It just seems to be dominating the tribulation period. Um, and so that makes sense. And some of the other things make sense. But then there are other uh, judgments, such as darkness. The darkness goes away. So it's temporary. It doesn't seem to be going ongoing in quite the same way. But then there are other things. Okay, a third of the world dies. That has to have ongoing ramifications, you think. The rivers become blood. That's got to have ongoing ramifications. So it's not just, it, it happens, it's over. Uh, so this is probably incomplete. Some things do, some things don't. So it's probably not the best way overall to look at it. Then there's telescopic sequence. This is the view that I actually hold. Robert Thomas uh, helped with that view in his commentary on the book of Revelation. You have the seventh seal is the seven trumpets. And the seventh trumpet is the seven bowls. And uh, the reason for this is the way the structure of the book seems to fall out. You know, the seventh seal is, all it says is there's silence in heaven. That's all it says. Well, is that what that seventh seal is? The silence of heaven. No, what follows? The seven trumpets. So I tend to think the seventh seal is the seven trumpets. You have a similar thing happening from the transition uh, from the uh, seventh trumpet into the bold judgments. There's a distinct break. The story of the two witnesses comes between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. Uh, so you have things that make me think that it's a telescopic sequence. That's the name given to this chart here. And then there's a recapitulation. This is a dispensational recapitulation, not the amillennial one. 
And this is one, there are seven judgments described three times rather than 21 judgments. So that the first seal, the first trumpet, and the first bowl are all talking about the same thing. Maybe using different language, but it's really talking about the same judgment. You have to be a little more symbolic in doing this this way. Um, but each, each of those recapitulate what went before. That is, goes back over the same thing. That's what recapitulate means. And then there's modified recapitulation. You have the seals and the trumpets, and the, but the seals stand alone, but the trumpets and bowl, the bowls recapitulate the trumpets. They go back over the same material that the trumpets gave. And I, I can understand that, for example, in um, the sixth trumpet, the river, the river Euphrates is mentioned. In the sixth bowl, the river Euphrates is mentioned. In the sixth trumpet, you have 200 million man army. In the sixth bowl, you have Armageddon. So a lot of people have some others talking about the same thing. I'm not convinced because there are differences you have to deal with in those texts as well. But that those, those similar uh, elements make people think that the bowls recapitulate the trumpets. That's what people are looking at in the text. Now, let me re review real quickly the millennial positions. You all know this really well already. I just want to highlight it. Have it in your brain. Have the chart in your brain while we uh, move in our analysis. Here's how millennialism. It actually has the easiest eschatology chart to draw. <laughs> draw a line and put a dot. That's pretty much it. We dress it up a little bit uh, to make it to look nicer for them. Uh, but they have seen the millennium is the church age and the church in the present age. We have church in the Old Testament. Church in the present age, that's the millennium. First advent to second advent. And their scheme is the millennium. And then when Christ comes, we have the eternal state. Some millennialists, like Hokema and Vern Poitras, will have an earthly eternal state. Because they knew earth statement in Revelation 21. But most of them don't. Eternal states like going to heaven. Um, Jews in, the, in uh, most all millennialist schemes only have a future in the church so a Jew can uh, be part of this but they have to come to Christ and come into the church okay. and there is no future for national Israel in this scheme and then there's post millennialism the blue dot shows you where you are at the mall Some will say we're in the millennium already, but not too many will say that. So the thousand years in this scheme is probably, in, like most all millennialists, an indefinite period of time. The earlier post-millennialists, and I can't find it earlier than the 1600s, they seem to be literal about the thousand years. But today, not too many post-millennialists I know are actually very literal about the thousand years. So it's an indefinite period of time. We don't know how long. Uh, and so they have, the church through its evangelism and Christianizing of society ushers in the kingdom, ushers in the millennium. And Jesus comes back at the end of the millennium as a kind of reward to the church. Okay. Um, they have an interesting role relative to the Jewish people. Most post-millennialists, the papacy must fall before the Jews come to Christ. Why? The papacy is the most anti-Semitic group. In the Roman Catholic Church, the most anti-Semitic group. And so there has to be a fall 
of the papacy, who following the reformers is the Antichrist. So the papacy, which is the Antichrist, has to fall, get out of the way, then the Jewish people will convert. Okay? And then, after that, the kingdom's ushered in, and then a thousand years later, Jesus returns. It is not a mere expectation for the return of Christ. That's not what they're looking for, looking at, because that's a thousand years plus away. And in premillennialism, the good guys, that's us, uh, you have Old Testament Israel, Israel distinct from the church, in the church age, the present age, uh, it's going to end with the rapture of the church, and a little gap, and then a trib, this is not drawn to scale by the way, the trib is seven years, and then there's the millennium for a thousand years, which I take literally a thousand years, and then the eternal state, notice I have the word kingdom under both millennium and eternal state, the Old Testament prophets look down the corridor of time and they just predict a forever kingdom. If you read Daniel 7, <clears throat> and the Son of Man comes to receive from the Ancient of Days the kingdom, it's a forever kingdom. So Christ, in this scheme, has to bring in the kingdom, so he comes and then the millennium. Definite order. Now the, the timing of all this is very important. Now let me say this. It's the most important thing I want to say to you in this session. Okay. 19 comes before 20. Revelation 19 and then 20. 19 comes before 20. It's crucial. Now the timing, there are two key points. If there is chronological sequence in 19 and 20, premillennialism is the strong conclusion. Well, let me say it to you another way. If there's chronological sequence there, premillennialism is a slam dunk truth. There is no other option. That is why when you read all millennialists and they start talking about the debate over the millennium, they say, we have to start in Revelation 20. They do have to start there. Because if they're wrong about this, they die there. Their entire position dies there. That's not true for you and me. Number two, if the thousand years in Revelation 20 is about the present age, let's, let's assume for sake of argument that they're right, that the thousand years in Revelation 20 is talking about the present age, okay, that still does not rule out the Messiah coming again to set up an earthly kingdom based on other passages such as those in the Old Testament. For example, Zechariah 12 to 14. So if I'm wrong in Revelation 20, it does not destroy my entire outlook of Messiah coming to set up an earthly kingdom. Okay, just that Revelation 20 will be talking about the present age. For them, that's not true. If they're wrong there, their whole view goes out the window. So I wanted to make that. Now, number two, we're not wrong about Revelation 20. Okay, and I'm about to prove that to you as we go along. Any questions so far? Did you hit your button? Yes, I did. Thank you. And I was supposed to hit another button when we stopped. The usual all-millennial approach to doing away with chronology. See, okay, they got, if the chronology is there, 19 and 20. If there's chronology, they got to do something. So how do they get rid of it? The usual all-millennial approach to doing away with chronology 
in Revelation 19 and 20 is the amillennial recapitulation view. Now this view I found I goes back at least to the fourth century AD. Sometimes this is called progressive parallelism. Give you a few moments to fill that out on your sheet. quick review of a few church fathers. Tychonius, you have probably never heard of. Anybody here heard of Tychonius, the church father? Uh, he's not in any movie. So. He's not from Sparta. <laughs> Tychonius, his major writings are from 370 to 390. He dies around 400. His life overlaps Augustine, who died in 430. And he, that is Tychonius, is in the previous generation. So he overlaps, and he's the, he's the older guy, Augustine, the younger guy. Tychonius wrote a thing called the Book of Rules. It's a little hermeneutical thing. Uh, written around 382, seven hermeneutical or mystical rules, he called them. And he called them mystical because Bible language was different than all other languages. When you and I read the Bible, we kind of assume a basic communication, literal, grammatical, historical interpretation, basically the way people communicate. Uh, and uh, it was, to him, it was a mystical. That tells you there's a problem right away. Okay? And he had seven rules, and I have not studied all these rules yet. Uh, this book is available to us. Uh, I just wanted to highlight one of his rules. You can tell which one. On the Lord and his body, the body there is the church. So when you come to a passage, you're looking at, okay, what's, what's uh, talking about the Lord, what's talking about the church? Uh, on the bipartite body of the Lord, on the promises of the law, on the particular of the general, on times, he goes into details about time indicators and markers and Bible passages, and then on recapitulation. And he talks about, is he using that as a hermeneutical switch, you know, a way to interpret, or is he just making observations? He, he comes across kind of both ways and then wraps it up on a high note on the devil in his part. Well, he does have an exposition of the Apocalypse, of the book of Revelation, written three years later, where he makes use of some of his rules. Uh, his commentary is not... Uh, Extent, we don't have a manuscript of it, but he is quoted so much by the church fathers right after him that we're able to reconstruct most of it. And there's actually a published version of it now, okay, which I have a copy of. But I haven't finished going through it all, but I've started. I'm going through it. Uh, here's what he says after the works of the church have been described, he's talking about the book of Revelation, and where are the works of the church described? The seven letters seven churches. After the works of the church have been described, which he predicted were going to happen, he uh, also, I think John, the apostle who's writing the book of Revelation, also recapitulates from the nativity of Christ. Uh, he goes back to the first coming. And he is going to speak about those same things in a different manner. And after these things, he says, I saw, and these are from, he quotes Revelation, he's talking about Revelation 4.1. So the first three chapters, the church is in the present age. 
in chapter four is like a computer interrupt. You go back and you start over again with the first coming. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in chapter four and following, you have the first coming. So you have these recapitulations throughout the book. I'll highlight the exact places where most of the Lamas put them. But Tychonius had 12 recapitulations. I haven't studied all of them yet. 4.1 that we just saw the quote on is the first one. And notice, I, I kind of, I hope you don't miss it. 20 verse 1. Okay. And so you've got to have a recapitulation there to do away with the chronology, Christ coming, and then the millennium. So you have to stick one there. And, and I think they do that, that they do it because they want to get rid of the chronology. Augustine, in his own Christian teaching, Augustine gives a qualified praise to Tychonius' rules, including recapitulation. However, he does not talk about the book of Revelation, in that he's praising him for that. In the city of God, Augustine affirms that the thousand years of Revelation 20 does not refer to a future earthly millennium. Now, if you remember the history of Augustine's life, he started out as a premillennialist when he became a Christian. And then he shifted from premillennialism to amillennialism. Um, uh, but he doesn't seem to invoke language of recapitulation. I'm still searching through the city of God trying to find that. Because a lot of people will call the recapitulation view, the amillennial recapitulation view, the Augustinian recapitulation view. And I haven't found anything yet to justify that. So I'm still looking. It could be in there. But then you have the Venerable Bede later on. You see his dates. Any of you heard of Venerable Bede before? Okay. He sees Revelation as having seven sections of recapitulation of the present age. This is going to be, as we'll see later, kind of the standard all-millennial way of doing it today. You have the seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, the woman as the church, so that's not too good. The seven bowls, the ungodly city Babylon, the New Jerusalem. It's not exactly like the Amalist day, but close, as we'll see. So you have seven sections. And he's the first guy I found that puts it seven sections. Seven's a big number in the book of Revelation, right? So uh, that's where the seven sections comes from. But there's no verse in Revelation that says, this book shall be divided into seven sections. Yeah, so they're just they're assuming the structure as they go. Now I'm going to fast forward from early 700s all the way to the 1970s. Okay. And I'm sure you're not disappointed. Anthony Holcomb, well, millennialist, he says, the system of interpretation of the book of Revelation which seems most satisfactory to me is that known as progressive parallelism. According to this view, the book of Revelation consists of seven sections which run parallel to each other, each of which depicts the church and the world from the time of Christ's first coming to the time of his second. This comes out of the book, The Meaning of the Millennium, Four Views. He represents the all-millennial uh, one in that book. Sam Storms. Anybody read anything by Sam Storms? He, uh, he wrote a little, uh, almost hateful uh, Piece on the Gospel Coalition website against dispensationalists, uh, which I responded to, and I also gave a paper uh, responding to his book. Um, 
at the Preacher and Study Group a couple years ago. Most non-millennialists, he says, interpret the book of Revelation according to what is called progressive parallelism, the view that I defended briefly in the previous chapter. According to this view of the book, Revelation consists of seven sections which run parallel to each other, each of which depicts the church and the world from the time of Christ's first coming to the time of his second. This has also been called the recapitulation view, meaning that the structure of Revelation does not relate consecutive events, but frequently covers the same ground from different perspectives. So I wanted to show you that from the words of the non-millennials themselves. So here's the picture of it. Alkima also put up Hendrickson, he's a non-millennialist, you see some of his commentaries out there. And here's the division, chapters 1 through 3, 4 through 7. Okay, those seven letters to the churches, 1 through 3, 4 through 7. You have the introduction and the seals, 8 through 11. Trumpets with some, some interlude stuff, 12 through 14. Is that the woman, number B, the woman who is the church? You have interludes, 12, 13, 14. 15, 16, the bowl, 17 to 19, you have the Babylon story, followed by the coming of Christ. And then 20 to 22, you have the millennium and eternal state. Okay? And the red, red is Christ coming. But notice, each section recapitulates the present age. So at chapter 20, it goes back to start with the first advent, and therefore the thousand years is describing the present time. So, according to that scheme, you and I now live in the millennium. And as I've often said, and I'll say it again probably five times at this conference, you know, I come from the Philadelphia area, and if we are already in the kingdom, somebody forgot to tell Philadelphia. <laughs> Look out the window, and it doesn't feel like it's the millennium. Okay. So, so the book of Revelation is not sequential. The break between Revelation 19 and 20 keeps the second coming from preceding the thousand years. This is their maneuver, their interpretive maneuver to keep premillennialism from being true. But actually, they can't stop it. So why am I a premillennialist uh, based upon the, just the book of Revelation? And a little bit of theological integration I'm going to do here. I'm going to wrap it up with reasons and make a response. <coughs> I mean, I could just simply say, you guys just aren't being literal. And that would be true. But I'm going to say more than that. Okay. First reason, the outline in 119 does not allow the recapitulation view. That's why, by the way, Greg Beale, in his all-millennial commentary, gigantic thing on the book of Revelation, uh, has like a four-page chapter or so of this one verse uh, trying to knock out the implications of this for premillennialists and the order of the book of Revelation. In 119, therefore, this is Jesus uh, telling John, therefore write the things which you have seen, He's just seen a portrait of Christ. And the things which are, the seven churches, I take it, and the things which will take place after these things. And in chapter 4, it actually uses the phrase, after these things. 
And so you have the sequence of the book mentioned in verse 19. Verse 19 in chapter 1 gives the outline. Three sections. Things which are, things which you have seen, things which are, things which will be. That's the outline of the book. There's no way to fit that recapitulation model of those seven sections into this verse and the outline that it expresses. So that's the first thing. And they understand that they have a problem there. That's a significant one. Second, there is a unity of the entire section on last judgments. And in particular, let me highlight this part of it. Uh, The unholy trinity, as I sometimes mockingly say, who would the unholy trinity be? Satan, Antichrist, false prophet. And what happens to them is described very well and very uh, dramatically and very gruesome. Uh, In chapter 19, Christ comes And we have to be honest, when Jesus does come, he actually kills people. We have to be honest about that. But who is he? He's God. And God has the right of death and life. Life and death. So Jesus comes back. uh, And verse 20, And the beast was seized. The beast is the Antichrist. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. So they're thrown alive, you know, a very gruesome thing, picture, into the fire. And then in chapter 20, Satan is bound for a thousand years. But at the end of that, verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown to the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So you have, in chapter 19 and 20, you have the ending destruction of the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan, the Holy Trinity. Thematically, that goes together. There's a unity to the themes here. God is wrapping it up, taking down the great enemies. And so to just arbitrarily, I'm saying that, they would not, but arbitrarily putting a a division between 19 and 20 and starting over with the first advent doesn't make sense because of that unity of judgment that's there. Okay? Everybody tracking with me on this? There's some other unities in those sections as well, but uh, that was, I'll highlight that to make that uh, uppermost in your mind. And then third is the chi-meter, sometimes pronounced Chiameter, I've heard it pronounced that way in the book of Revelation. The word chi, K-I-K-A-I, from Greek, means that's the word end. Okay, those of you who had Greek know that. It occurs over 1,100 times in the book of Revelation. 
And because of that, and I, and I think it occurs more in some of the Gospels, but percentage-wise, based on chapters, it's probably the highest use of Kai in the New Testament. Because of that, many scholars say that the book of Revelation is the most Hebraic of the New Testament books. By Hebraic, it borrows from Hebrew. Well, you know, what was it borrowed from Hebrew? The word and. And the narratives of Hebrew. When you read uh, the, the Old Testament narratives, and you just have to be honest, don't sometimes you get bored? And this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. You have to force yourself to think through it. Uh, and it's exciting once you think through it, but on the surface, it's that and, 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 and. It's that vav consecutive in Hebrew on the uh, front of their verbs. And it just pushes chronology. That's what I want you to remember. This and, this abundant use of and, pushes chronology. So you can't fit a recapitulation scheme into that. Okay, you tracking with me? Okay. Now, these are all evidences within the book of Revelation itself. The next one is going to be evidence within the book of Revelation, but also outside of it. And that is the theological problem. What's their big theological problem in Revelation 20 that the amillennialists have? Anybody know? There's something that happens in Revelation 20 that is very hard for the amillennialists. The temple? No, not the temple. Eternity? No. Satan is bound. You're a very theological name. <laughs> Satan is bound. Well, if the amillennial recapitulation is right, then Satan is bound today. And someone said if he's bound today, he's on an awfully long chain. <laughs> he seems to be active. But according to Revelation 20, what is he bound for? so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. So he was bound so he wouldn't deceive the nations during the thousand years. That's a problem. And all millennialists, so they'll have various explanations. I mean, we'd have... Uh, Amillennials apply to our PhD program when I was at Baptist Bible Seminary, and I was on the committee always as part of the interview process. Uh, and when the Amillennials would come, invariably I would ask them about um, baptism, especially if they were Presbyterian. I mean, you're, you're applying to a Baptist seminary. Okay, let's, let's talk a little bit about how you baptize people and why. You know, I'd do that. Then we'd also would always go to Revelation 20. And they would have to explain to us, if Satan is bound today, what does that mean? doesn't see the nation. What does that mean? And we'd bat that around. And they were all over the map, and they're uh, struggling with that. It is, it is a horrendous thorn in their theological flesh. Okay. Now, so Satan is not bound in the present age. For them... But notice he bothers Christians. Some of the amillennialists we'd have, and Sam Storms in his book says this, 
we're not saying that Satan is not active. We think he bothers believers. He persecutes believers, but he doesn't deceive the unbelievers. That was the statement. Okay? Well, he's certainly right. Some among us would not even have uh, him bothering believers. Uh, it remains to be seen. Okay, how can he be bound and bother believers? That's another question. Uh, but you know these passages, don't you? Ephesians 6, 11 to 12? What is that? Can anybody quote that to me? That's the whole armor of God passage, and you're going to protect yourself from what? The walls of the devil, the fiery darts of the devil. You, could, you know, we're just standing against the devil, so it's clear in that passage that he is attacking Christians. First John, First Peter five eight. You know that passage. What's that passage? Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Okay, so in that passage, First Peter five eight, Satan is portrayed as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's talking about Christians. That Satan wants to kill Christians, so he's bothering Christians. Okay, and then Revelation two nine and 10, 13, 24, 3, 9, uh, in the letters to the churches, this goes back inside the book of Revelation. It, for example, a couple of those passages, 2939, talks about the synagogue of Satan. So he's active in the churches, um, battling against the churches. So there is no way to say that he doesn't bother Christians. And like I said, some amillennialists will allow for that. Like Sam Storms, he allows for. Satan to bother Christians in the present age. Still needs to explain how that works if he's bound. And then he does deceive those who are unbelievers today. And there are two passages I want to take you to. The first one is Acts 13, 8 through 10. Paul is on his first missionary journey. Verse 6, I'll pick it up in verse 6, get a running start. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus the magician so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the, what's the word? Devil. You enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? So here is a man who's an unbeliever. He's trying to uh, deceive Another unbeliever from he doesn't want him to trust Christ, and Paul calls him a son of the devil. Okay, that implies Satan influencing unbelievers or attempting to. Okay, he's bothering them. Then Second Corinthians four. Second Corinthians four, verses three and four. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, God of this world is Satan, 
has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Does that sound like deception? So that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So we have a theological statement by Paul about what's happening in the present time, and Satan is blinding the minds of unbelievers. So you have to say that Satan is bothering both Christians and unbelievers at the present time. There's no way around it. Now, that um, is the thrust of my presentation, but I have allowed for a time, as for as long as you want to go, for questions. Although I will stop at supper time. So, um, are most of these modern all mills uh, writers historicists? They believe that the um, seal, trumpet, bowl judgments have been fulfilled or are being fulfilled in the church age. So, do they try to connect those judgments to certain events in history? Some do, some don't. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, who was post millennial, not unlimited. He did that. He mapped the 1260 days of Revelation as 1260 years. Uh, he mapped it from 660 to 1866. Or so, you know, 606 to 1866. And then he tried to map out. I mean, he had, he had John Huss and Calvin and Luther and uh, people on there and other and early in church history people mapping out the bowls. He tried to do that. So I think you've seen a lot of that in church history. The modern guys downplay that, I think, but there are a few that still do that. So Sam Storms would... Uh, I didn't see that. Kind of, yeah. I didn't see that. They either. probably saw the error of trying to fit Perhaps. a pigeonhole and yeah. say they want to be general. Yeah, I don't remember chance. seeing that in his book. Yeah. yeah. Good question. Yes, sir? Following up on that question, is, is that one reason why they have to resort to so much Symbolism, because the, I mean, obviously, nothing like any of those judgments has, has happened unless you just symbolize the judgments. What, this is what it says, but this is what it means. Yeah, that's a good observation. And in a straightforward descript, description, even allowing for symbolism and um, figures of speech, still far off base what they could. I mean, you know, who's John Huss? Who's Luther? You know, what's going on in it? You do that stuff and go, really? Uh, so the modern guys don't do that as bad as far as I can tell. Uh, but, uh, so what do they, the modern guys do with those judgments? Well, they tend to make uh, all, the, this, all the different recapitulations as a description of the battle of good and evil in general that's affecting the church in the present time. So like rivers turning to blood and yeah, it's just it's just kind of it's just imagery, it's negative imagery to talk about the church's um, conflict. That's pretty well what they how they view it, which is uh, we call that idealism as a they're idealists. So it's just a picture of the conflict of the ages in each separate recapitulation. Yes. When you said uh, Satan bothers Christians, what do you mean by that? Like, 
what specifically does he do to bother Christians? Okay, well, in 1 Peter 5.8, he's trying to kill us, whatever form that might take. That one's pretty easy. In 6, uh, he's tempting us. And Paul says, we know the wiles of the devil, we're trying, and we need the whole armor of God, we need faith, salvation, you know, uh, all those things. Uh, we need to be doing the good things, you know, feet shod properly, the gospel. Uh, all those things, because Satan is throwing darts at us, and what are his darts? What are his darts against Jesus? Or temptation? So he's trying to get us off the off the trail of holy living. And when they talk about Satan being bound now, are they saying you just can't imagine how bad it would be if he wasn't bound? <laughs> or are they saying? Well, how do, they, how do they, I don't want to put words in their mouth. How do they address Satan being bound? Well, he doesn't deceive the nations. They, that's, that's what the text says. He's bound, and we see him bound and not deceiving the nations in the millennium until the thousand years is up, and toward the end of the millennium, he's let out and he deceives the nations one last time. So during that time, he's not deceiving the nations. Okay, so, uh, and there are probably emphasizing unbelievers the people that are rising up, being born in the millennium, you know, at the end he has a little army, you know, of, of unbelievers that he gathers. Uh, so he's not, uh, he's not bothering them during that thousand years for us, but for the present time, they have to have some way of saying that, but they don't have a way. That's what I'm saying. They what don't happened? have a way. You're right. They don't have a way. They don't. They don't. They don't even try. Well, they just generalize. They resort to idealism. It's just a this is just a word picture from that time frame in history. Uh, for there's going to be con conflict of good and evil involving the church, Satan, and etc. That's all it is. But they don't have Satan involved, most for the most part, right? Because he's bound. Well, do they acknowledge the role of Satan in our society and world affairs today? Not all of them. For example, uh, Jay Adams. You remember Jay Adams? Mm -hmm. Okay, he wrote that book, Confidence Council. And in that book, he says, because I am a five point Calvinist and a non millennialist, there are two things I never consider when I counsel people. Okay, number one, because I'm a five point Calvinist, I never tell anybody that Jesus loved them and died for them because I don't mm -hmm. know. Okay, and number two, I never consider demon possession because Satan is bound today. Mm. So. Mm. And this is growing? This movement is growing? It is, a little bit, yeah. It seems like they want to be so open-minded to all the different voices out there, voicing their religion. They don't want to stand on any one thing. And, they, and I've got a guy in my church just like that. He just kind of says, you know, well, we're not really sure about any of this. It's like he doesn't know for sure what he stands on, but he's open enough to believe in all the Well, it could be. I know Sam Storms, he's, he's clear. Well, oh, he's absolutely clear. He's not ambiguous at all. Premillennialists are wrong. And his uh, amillennialism is right. And he, he, does, he probably does the best job of any amillennialist I've seen at trying to defend his view. I don't agree with him at all. He takes a stand. What's their motivation, or what do they, what do they start with that gets them off track? Whereas we would be 
just literal. They are traditional. They are creedal. Okay, the reform. So reform. You're talking about the reform guys. Their Westminster Confession of Faith. Well, the Westminster Confession of Faith is an all-millennial document, and for them to go against it would be kind of going against their soul. So they're trying to just fit it in to the kind of status So your soteriology does sort of. Yeah. Does the Westminster Confession address issues like this? Which one? The binding well, like, of Satan? Like the binding of Satan? I don't recall that it did. It's been I, a long I time know. since I read the Westminster Confession of Faith. To be honest with you. I don't, oh, I don't go back and check uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith when I do my sermons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know they are going to it. I mean, I read it every now and then, you know, but, you know. And I have friends who are over in that camp. You know, they are brothers in Christ. I'm not talking about uh, people who are serious about their Christian walk, but they're dead wrong on these things. And it does affect their Christian walk, although they don't know that. So when they talk about the blessed hope, how do they have any? Well, the blessed hope for them is just the second coming, uh, not a rapture. They don't have a rapture. Uh, the second coming. Where's the second coming? So do they see any difference between wrath and, and trials? Or? Sometimes they don't. Because you see a lot of them talking about the, especially if, if the wrath, all these wrathful things being poured out from the scroll, being right. seals and all that, all that. Well, that's that's equated, since that's just a con- the history of the conflict of evil from the first, second advent in each section. Well, that goes back to general tribulation. And so you see them equating those things to the other passages like in the epistles that talk about uh, us facing tribulation and trials. So they make it equivalent. So, yes, yeah, so they don't divide. Okay. Um, okay. Oh, thank you, Yep, and if I don't know an answer, I'll make it up. <laughs> we have a, and then we we'll hold you to it. <laughs> Mike's <We have>, sad. <laughs> we have a... Uh, tour guide in Israel that we always use named Tito uh, and he, he constantly saying he'll give us a big spiel about some archaeological site and he says I know that's true because I made it up myself <laughs> oh. so so you mentioned the city of God that book would you recommend people read that or I know I know people that have read it no, and they every, stand yeah. on it like just like the best book ever. And I, well, I think pastors should read it once in their life. Okay. But I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend our people and our churches to, well, unless you're called to do historical studies okay. in some special way, uh, I wouldn't recommend it. What do you think changed Augustine's perspective? I think he was in the Montanist group and they had some crazy stuff going on. They weren't just premillennialists, they were I mean, Montanist, according to some church fathers, was claiming to be the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. He was doing stuff like that. And there was the tongue speaking and all that, and he just, he got away from it, and I think it scared him. I think it would have scared me. But unfortunately, it scared him away from their premillennialism. He threw the baby out with the bathwater. So, we would be considered telescopic sequence? I would be, 
Or you got to make a decision for yourself. <laughs> what was the uh, the one on the twenty one judgments? What what was the fill in on simple that? sequence? Simple. Simple sequence. It was just twenty one judgments. Yep, lined up in a row. But if if, if you just read it, it seems so obvious. <laughs> well, but I mean, there are dispensationalists in all those groups uh, that I gave at the beginning. Uh, there are dispensationalists in all of those, so um, and they have their reasons for that. And I told you I was telescopic. Um, you know, on, on the the on the dial of uh, dogmatic being dogmatic, I'm probably not a ten on that. You know what I mean? I might be an eight or a nine, but I'm not a three. Okay, uh, so. I'm always studying, trying to do better. But I haven't seen anything better than the telescopic approach. Yes? So looking at these sections in Revelation and thinking about some of the differences in the chapters, it's I'm trying to think like they would think. And how I'm not seeing how they can go back and say we're starting back with the you say the incarnation? No, uh, birth, nativity. Yeah. First, first, well, first coming. Say it that way. First coming, which okay, you know, coming. he's born, and then the rest of it. So first some coming, of the, the second coming. Some of the differences between these sections are so... Well, see, but you're taking them too little. Okay. So it's the idealism? <laughs> the idealism, the conflict. You look at it, there's judgment and conflict. And okay. God's people are caught up in that. They're okay. assuming that that's talking about the... Church, church experience. Calvin has a statement about that. He says uh, this section, which is a horrible little section on the attacking premillennialists, uh, he says they basically uh, don't understand that that thousand years is talking about the experience of the church in the present time and the conflict that we endure. So that's that's pretty much where they are. Did they ever go back to Genesis where the Abraham, like the Abrahamic covenant is? Because they're like totally. Are we over? Are they shifted over to an Israel question? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, don't they? Isn't Revelation for Israel? I mean, it's partly for Israel. I mean, Revelation 12, yeah. the woman. Remember, Venerable B took it as a church. I. It's yeah. obviously Israel to me, and they should uh, take that into consideration. But the vast majority of commentators out there. And the millennial camp, they're all they'll take it as the church. Revelation 12. So they don't have Israel much in there at all. So, so they've judged Israel. Well, yeah. they're replacement guys. The church has replaced Israel. In, uh, in Romans, when, when he says all Israel will be saved, that's referring to national Israel, right? Well, and the individuals within national Israel. In fact, I'm preaching on that tomorrow, by the way. You are? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's the, it's the I believe, it's, I think all Jews who are alive at that time will come to Christ. The second coming. Those who endure to the end, those who are alive at the end when Christ comes, they're going to be saved. But not ones that didn't uh, believe before. What do you mean by that? Um, 
Yeah. You know, prior to or living today or... Well, I wouldn't necessarily make that qualification. Are you basing that on Second Thessalonians 2? Thinking about the delusion that God's going to send them strong delusion. Are you thinking about that passage? Well, what they talked about this morning in uh, in Romans nine was that, as I understood it, that uh, uh, the Jews who believed would be saved. Well, see, my my view is that when Christ returns, the Jews will see him and believe. Oh, okay. Coming, when they see him, so the all of those, for him whom they've seen. So all those that are living at that time, at that time, at the second coming, they'll they'll embrace Jesus. Yeah, I think I think if I'm not mistaken, what you're asking is the term "all Israel." Does that mean all Jews throughout of the generation? Right. Summary statement, or is it referring simply to those at the end of the tribulation? You know, well, all, all Jews, and I think that's what. I'm saying you know, at the end of the trip, the Jews who are alive at the end of the trip. Yeah, that's at the end of the tribulation. Yeah. That's the promise that God's going to bring them back. Not all Jews in history. Okay, right. Because right. right. the remnants contrasted with the future nation as a whole. So, so the ones that die without Christ are just like the rest. Of like the rest of the people without Christ. Okay, that's kind of where I was coming from on that. Yeah. No, it's not all all Jews everywhere get saved. Because they're Jews, but no, essentially the the promise is still fulfilled. It's fulfilled. They have to, but they have to come to Christ for the promise to be enabled. It's useless if they don't. Are you going to talk about the everlasting covenant as well? The Isaiah fifty nine. Yeah, in my NASB it doesn't use the term everlasting covenant, uh, so I probably won't. <laughs> um, I, I take that as probably the new covenant myself. Is it, what's the covenant that the, the new, not the new covenant was in Jeremiah 31? The, the, the passage of Jeremiah 31. 31. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, you know, we dispensationalists all agree on the new covenant. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually the issue that dispensationalists disagree on the most. Really? I think is the new covenant. But it was a covenant made with Israel and the church. In Jeremiah 31. And, I, and my view is that the church enjoys the spiritual. My view is the same as Darby's. The church enjoys the spiritual blessings of the new covenant uh, without being a part legal partner to the covenant. God just sovereignly chooses to apply it to us. That's how I take the Hebrews passages and some other passages. But there's some uh, in our number, some here who. Uh, don't believe there's any new covenant application whatsoever to the church. There are not too many, two new covenant guys left that I know of who hold two new covenants, one for Israel, one for the church. Um, and then there's a couple variations of those who see application to the church, how that's worked out. So, uh, I have a book I edited, um, Dispensational Understanding of the New Covenant. That's a debate book of three views. You might want to consider getting that. Uh, there's none here, uh, but check on Amazon. It's put out by regular Baptist Press. Title again was? Dispensational Understanding of the New Covenant. And on the editor, I write a history article, The History of Interpretation of, Dispens- of the New Covenant in Dispensational History. 
uh, starting with Darby and coming forward, and then uh, I write a, a forward uh, preface to the book, and I never tell them what my view is. I just let the debate guys get their views, and I never say what my view is. Who are the debate guys? Uh, Roy Beecham from Central Seminary uh, advocated for the view there's no new covenant application to the church. And then the Elliot Johnson held to Darby's view, which is my view, that there's application to the church, but it's not direct, it's indirect through our, uh, and, uh, through our union with Christ. Uh, and then Rod Decker, who's in heaven now, uh, wrote uh, direct application. That's, but neither one of those hold that it. We're, the church is legal parties to the covenant. I don't think any of the views hold to that. Although, the second, uh, well, the, the New Schofield Reference Bible used fulfillment language for the New Covenant, and most of us don't like fulfillment language for the New Covenant. But the church fulfills the New Covenant promises. Really? And that was actually in the New Schofield Reference Bible. That sounds awful. Then, well, it does, but it's not. Homer Kent held to that view. He used fulfillment language uh, for the New Covenant. Michael Vallock uses fulfillment language for the New Covenant, and he's kind of in between traditional and progressive dispensationalism. I had lunch with him a couple weeks ago. Good guy. Heard a lot of good stuff, but he, holds, he likes fulfillment language. He thinks that's appropriate based upon the New Testament teaching. I, I look at it and I'm not convinced. But okay, Any other questions? Yeah, but we're still thinking about <laughs> Okay. Nobody's going to ask me where Cain got his wife? <laughs> well, you can save those questions for a sidebar off, grab me in the hallway or something. Appreciate you coming. Good discussion, good questions. Thank you. Good active group. Well, bless you. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Thank you.